Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. This is part two of a series that I'm doing out of 1 Peter chapter 1. So today, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. Let's read what the Word of God says. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. If you're listening today, have you ever heard of MasterCard? You know, that credit card that you can use that's a lot like a Visa card and where you have a limit to how much you can charge to this. It's possible you have one in your wallet right now. But several years ago, they used to put a commercial on TV to try to convince you to go into debt. Do you remember their iconic slogan? There are some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. While the concept of going into debt is in itself unbiblical, that commercial did get one thing right. Some things are priceless. Some things money simply can't buy. There was a national poll done some time ago, and they asked thousands of people across the country to write down something that they considered to be priceless. Naturally, there were all kinds of responses, but the most common ones were what you would imagine. Life, freedom, the pursuit of happiness, nature, human dignity, religious values, children. Today, I want to add one that really should be at the top of the list, and absolutely at the top of the list for us listening today. God. God is priceless. Who he is and what he has done for us through the person of Jesus Christ is the most priceless of all. And I hope we can agree on that. Anyway, going back to the scripture we're studying this morning, verse 17 starts us off with an understanding of who we are addressing. It says that we are addressing God as Father. To be clear, no one calls him Father with true spiritual affection, except those that he has saved. Those that do not call God Father either do not know him at all, or not in that way. The dynamic between man and his creator is drastically different compared to those who have been called according to his purpose. Those that are being saved receive a revelation of God's saving grace in their lives through the Holy Spirit that has come to dwell within those that he has called. So Peter here is still addressing 
Christians who are abroad. And he is referring to how we are God's children. We are heirs. We are recipients of an inheritance that surpasses all imagination. But not only are we calling him Father, but we are recognizing an important attribute of God's character here. He is a God of justice, and he judges impartially, meaning that he does not pick favorites, and that he does not judge unfairly. He does not hold some to a different standard, or a lighter standard, or a more severe standard, nor is his expectations of us based off of geography, of time period, intelligence, color, ability, or any other act of human reasoning. There is only one standard. Be holy because he is holy, like we talked about last time. The world is not capable of being holy because of the very nature of sin that is within us. All humanity is held under the same standard of accountability. Therefore, it is truthful that he judges impartially. We should not, however, confuse his justice with other attributes of his character, such as his grace or his mercy, because these gifts are a sovereign choice made by God himself that, much like the redemptive plan that he formulated before anything was created, he foreknew those that were going to be saved. As Christians, he still judges us the same way that he judges the world. However, it is the very nature of redemption that the verdict reached in front of the judgment seat of God has already been decided, and our blood guiltiness in our lives has been canceled. Our sins have been justified. Our debt has been cleared by this precious blood that is mentioned in verse 19. Nonetheless, God still judges us according to each one's work and every careless thing that comes out of our mouths. There is no one who does good, not even one. It is in our very nature to violate God's holy standard. Just because God chooses to elect some to his spiritual baptism, this does not mean that we are free to do as we please, as if the laws of God do not apply to us, or that our decisions simply don't matter. Instead, as verse 17 concludes, we are to conduct ourselves in fear during our time on earth. There seems to be a direct cause and effect here with understanding God as our Father and Judge, with how we conduct ourselves. We have no understanding of who God is without His revelation to us. So why would we think that our attitude and conduct before Him would be different apart from Him? If we did not have a firm grasp on the reality of who God is in His holiness, by understanding the work that he has already accomplished for you and me, why would we have a need to fear him? What Peter is referring to here is we are to conduct ourselves in fear because he is expecting us to become aware of what God has done for us in our redemption. 
he is implying and expecting us as Christians to grow in faith, to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Verse 18 also seems to point to that. We are supposed to know that we were redeemed with something imperishable instead of tangible material currencies or objects of value. Our redemption was not purchased in a manner that appeases man or satisfies the heart of man. Rather, the wrath of God was satisfied by something that is of divine currency. In the Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, we tend to come to an understanding that sins were satisfied and cleansed through the sacrificial system. It was written in Hebrews 9.22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And yet, Hebrews 10.4 also says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Is this a contradiction in some way? Not at all. Upon closer inspection of the Old Testament, we find men who more deeply understood that the blood of the animal sacrifices did not actually cleanse their sins. 1 Samuel 15.22 is a great example, where Samuel says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. David also understood this after he had sinned with Bathsheba and plotted the murder of her husband Uriah the Hittite. Psalm 51, verses 15 through 17 says, O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So, was God lying this whole time that animals could forgive sins? Absolutely not. The sacrifices instituted by God matter because God desired his people to be obedient, to feel the weight of their sin as they put an innocent animal to death, when in reality, they were the ones that were supposed to die. It was a matter of the posture of the heart that determined whether God forgives or not. He recognizes the obedience and the state of our hearts more than the blood of an animal. This form of what we call substitutionary atonement is incomplete if there is tainted blood or an unrepentant heart. Our blood as human beings is fallible and riddled with sin. How could something so impure possibly cleanse us from our unrighteousness? Even more so, how could an animal that has no conscience and has no concept of sin be held accountable for our failures, the failures of humanity? Well, 
It is explained in the New Testament that the sacrificial system was a forerunner, a foreshadowing of what Jesus Christ was going to do during his time on earth for you and for me. Jesus willingly sacrificed himself for you. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says this about his own life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. The blood of Christ is pure. It's perfect. And according to verse 19, precious and invaluable. Peter makes it clear that nothing in creation is able to save you from the futility that we inherited from the sins of Adam. The Bible illustrates how pointless our existence is, how empty life is on its own, because God is the one that gives purpose and gives life and gives meaning to our existence. We were created for his good pleasure. There is only one transaction that is satisfactory for paying for all of the past, present, and future sins of humanity. That currency is the blood of someone who was sinless, righteous, and divine. There is only one person in all of history and all of future times that is able to do this, and that is Jesus Christ. He is described in verse 19 as being a lamb unblemished and spotless which again points to the sacrificial system, as well as to the original Passover lamb that saved the souls of the firstborn before the exodus from Egypt. John the Baptist also calls him the Lamb of God that was able to take away the sins of the world. John saw the connection between Jesus and the Old Testament Messiah because this is how the Messiah was always portrayed in the Old Testament. The prophecies showed that salvation was achieved through the only one who could do it. And that promise of redemption was born in the flesh, in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 through 11 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. We need to understand that God did not enjoy the fact that Jesus had to suffer, but he had always planned to rescue his people from their sins by sending the perfect, satisfactory substitute to die in our place. It had to be paid by the most valuable thing in all of existence, and this payment satisfied the wrath and justice of God the Father. Only God can forgive sins, and only perfect righteousness is acceptable as the payment 
for our sins. The blood of Jesus Christ is that which accomplished this. It is greater than all of creation combined, not only because of who is the source of this blood, but also what this blood was able to accomplish. This blood is able to bring that which is inherently spiritually dead to life. It is able to bring light to that which is inherently darkness. It is able to wipe sins clean as if they never happened. This is the lengths that God went to in order for you to have your debts wiped clean, for your debts to be paid in full. Going down to verse 20, it says that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This is the same root word that we see in verse 3 of this chapter, which says that God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. The plan of redemption predates all of creation. Before the Lord spoke the universe into existence, he had already developed a plan to save his people for all time. That is why the coming of Jesus is referred to in Scripture as the time instead of a time, because this was always the plan, and God is able to accomplish whatever he plans to do without interruption and without resistance. There is no force or power in all of creation that is able to thwart what God has chosen to do. That certainly does not stop these forces of evil from trying. They are constantly put to shame every time they try and ultimately fail. Such futility in itself. Verse 20 is also illustrating here how it was always the plan that Christ would manifest himself as a man at a certain point of history. What's interesting is that he refers to the church age, which is the time from Pentecost to this point in history, 2,000 years later, all the way to when he returns in his second coming. All of this is considered the last times. It has to be on God's timetable because 2,000 plus years is not very short for us. Nonetheless, Peter is indicating that there will no longer be a time like ours after Jesus returns. It is clear in the book of Revelation that the old heavens and earth will pass away, clearly indicating that this is indeed a last age in the way that we understand it, because time will be irrelevant in eternity. It is profound to come to the realization that Christ appeared in our time for the sake of us. Why did he have to appear at all? Verse 21 indicates that his appearance made us believers in God, and that through him we would have faith and hope in the Father. The Son obeyed his Father perfectly, and through the completion of the plan of redemption, the Holy Spirit proved that Christ was true by raising him from the dead, in order to confirm 
what he had been saying was always authentic. And the Father granted him the name that is above all names. This same love that glorified Christ is the same love bestowed upon those who believe. But verse 21 makes it clear that we only believe because God made us believe. Not that we by chance happened to believe, or that there was a certain predisposition in us, but to fully understand that all of this was an act of God. We contributed nothing to our salvation. So in light of this truth, the fact that God gave us his grace, he saves us from condemnation, he allows us to join him for all eternity, we need to be reminded of what our proper response should be. What is the proper response? What is the proper way to respond to God in light of everything that he is doing and has done for us? Peter tells us in verse 17 that the only proper response to all this is to conduct yourselves in fear. He is creating a parallel with what is described in the Old Testament as being the fear of the Lord. We are to fear the Lord. We talked more in depth on this last time, but let me remind you that the fear of God supersedes that of the fear of man. A perfect fear of God is respect and admiration for him. All of our anxieties, all of our struggles, all of our worries will simply melt away if we have a true understanding of who God is. We have nothing to worry about because God has done everything from the beginning, and he continues to do everything for us. He is our king, and the king demands his very best from us, and we need to give him our very best. So make the decision today to learn who God is in light of what he has already done for you and what he continues to do for you, and give him the fear that he deserves. If you truly fear God, it will be clearly evident in your life. Not only will you take refuge in him when times get hard, but your affections for him should be evident in your actions and in your speech. So again, my greatest desire for you is that we understand the fear of the Lord and that we stay there. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain for us, and worthy is the King that has rescued us from ourselves. Let's pray today. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the revelation of who you are in your word. We thank you, probably without a full understanding of what you truly have done for us, but we come to you now with a heart of gratitude. We approach your throne with a heart of submission to your will. We understand, Lord, that you chose us from the beginning for salvation. Before you created anything, you knew that you were going to make us in this time and that you are going to call us into your presence. And we thank you, Lord, for that priceless gift. We thank you, Lord, for the lengths that you went to to save us. 
knowing full well that we were not able to save ourselves. But Lord, you did everything. You loved us first. You called us first. You sent your Son first. He died for our sins first. And you continue to work on our behalf every day. Your Holy Spirit sanctifies us and stays with us as a pledge of the promise of our inheritance. We thank you, Lord, for giving us you as our inheritance and heaven as our inheritance. Lord, we may not even have a fraction of understanding of what this truly means, but help us to grow in knowledge and wisdom of you and to have a heartfelt affection for you, to seek your face every day through Scripture and through prayer. And ultimately, Lord, to fulfill the other half of what you have called us to do, which is to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, as we spend more time with you, I'm confident that we will learn more about how to do that. A deeper understanding of who you are is going to give us a better understanding of how to love others. Help us in this dark time, Lord, to be light and salt in the midst of those who need to hear the gospel. May we not shy away from doing what you've called us to do, but as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, may we speak the gospel with boldness and with accuracy. May your Spirit guide us into all truth in the days to come. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you very much for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed this lesson. And that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.